You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Um, my guest this week is Dave Taylor. Dave's been doing comics, I guess, on and off. Is that a good way of putting it? Um, only, only one off, but it oh. was a long one. A, a long off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dave's uh, most recent uh, work is Batman um, Death by Design, uh, collaboration with uh, American book designer Chip Kidd. I guess book designer and author. I should make that distinction. Um, as well as um, the, I guess the closest creator owned stuff would be uh, Tunglash for Dark Horse as well as a variety of work for uh, 2000 AD on Judge Dredd and Judge Anderson and a thorough amount of Batman comics including uh, Run on Shadow of the Bat and um, World's Finest. Uh, miniseries with Carl Kessel back in, what was that, 97? I'm gonna I, tried, I tried to put that out of my memory. <clears throat> the, the, whole, the whole thing was a nightmare, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, let's see, 98, uh, not, not, yeah, 97 it started, I think, well, until I w- 99. Um, now, looking at some of this stuff about you, comics wasn't your first kind of artistic vocation, from what I understand. Um, you, not not you comic books. So, sorry, say again? You did music as well beforehand? Yeah, I, well, I was on the fence with it. I, I wanted to be a comic book artist and I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, I think the first thing I really, really wanted to do was draw my own comics and not get them published just for fun and to be a, a world-class guitarist in a rock band. Um... And then I got my fingers dislocated, or rather, I, I dislocated my fingers, and um, that kind of put the end to the, the guitar hero plan. Um, and I, I became a drummer a couple of months after. Once my fingers had sort of started working again on my left hand, I turned up to a band practice, and the guys—I I still to this day don't know where they got it from—but they, they got a drum kit, and there was a drum kit in the room, and I'd, I'd been. Uh, I, I drummed a little bit in um, in the, the Cub Scouts and the Boys Brigade of all things, and um, <clears throat> and I'd been fascinated with drumming, and I I was heavily into the band Rush, and Neil Peart uh, amazed me, and you know, so I, I sat down behind this drum kit and started playing, and immediately could play it. I mean, probably horribly, but you know, I, I knew what to do. Um, so from then on, I was a drummer. Did you need to get a big gong too? Was that part of the? <laughs> Never got a gong. <laughs> no, no, no. I got the lighter fuel and everything ready for it, but but I didn't. I never got the gong. I keep I keep hinting at it for Christmas, but I never get one. So and the helicopter and the Ford Mustang. I don't get those either. But you never know. <laughs> now you um, you yourself are very influenced by Rush, but was that what the band was? into as well or was it kind of different styles um well I, rush wasn't the only band i was into i mean my mates might think otherwise but um i did think they were amazing but i was into all sorts because i started out being uh, heavily influenced by classical music because my both my parents played classical music regularly my mum was um was a, an opera singer, not professional, but they did a lot of shows, uh, sort of amateur dramatics and, you know, <clears throat> um, 
she was an amazing opera singer. She still is. She's 82 now, but still can still wail. Um, and my dad was kind of dragged into the amateur dramatic side of it and had quite a, quite a good voice, I think. Um, so they, they just loved classical music and I, I kind of grew up listening to it. And my, my favourite thing was to sit and listen to Holst, The Planets. Uh, my, you know, that, that was one of the things that opened my imagination from an early age, I think. I could, I could sit and I could fly through the, the cosmos listening to this classical music about um, the solar system. Um, so then that kind of led on. When, when I heard Rush's 2112, that was kind of like, hang on, this, this is classical music, but with rock drums and guitars, and it, it, there was a link there, you know. Of course, the 1812 Overture I knew from an early age. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I think the, music, the, the rock music I got into sort of had a connection with the classical music I'd been into beforehand. But, um, yeah, I, I, got, I got into, after that, I, you know, the, the musical world opened up, and I was into T-Rex, um, <clears throat> The Who a little bit. Um, yeah, I could, I, could go, I, could, I could be here all day <laughs> listening to the, the, the music I was into, and still am. But what was the uh, ultimate choice to kind of diverge into, into becoming a cartoonist? Um... I'm, not, I'm taking it wasn't for the for the chicks. <laughs> it certainly wasn't for the money. No, uh, if only I'd known. Um, I was I was pretty convinced that I wanted to be a musician, and that was the thing that I felt I should have been doing because I didn't know anybody else that was a comic book artist, but I did know a couple of musicians, um, including my parents, and uh, it just kind of seemed like the natural way to go. Um, and I, I went to music college, or I actually went to art college first, to be fair. But um, because I'm dyslexic, I, I didn't get my English, I didn't get a high enough grade in English. And on the day we, we were supposed to be starting art college, uh, I'd, I'd won the place on the course and everything, everything seemed fine. And then I turned up on the day and they said, oh, we've just noticed you haven't got English. We're not, we're not going to let you in. We'll, we'll put you on this part-time course, this two or three days a week, uh, which totally shattered my illusions. And um, I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to be an artist then. Uh, I, I, did, I potted about with art for a couple of years, but um, because the art teachers were, were less than interested um, in their own work, let alone their students, it was completely uninspiring. So I, I kind of I just quit art college eventually, and, and I was kind of I was begged back by the, the head of the department to at least leave with um with a qualification. So I went back for a few months and did a uh, an A level in screen printing. Hmm. Um, but even then, the, the screen prints I was doing were, were there was one of a drum kit, and there was there was a, um, a portrait of Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush. So <laughs> it was kind of like you know there was something telling me that, that I you know. You know, let's forget about artwork. Let's let's concentrate on the music. Um, I, I ended up joining a band. I, I've been in lots, lots of bands, but I, I ended up joining a band. Um, actually, no, it's the other way around. I I, I I was working as a pub manager, a pub assistant manager, um, and ended up in London working in a pub down there. And on the way to London, I thought, well, hang on. 
let's not forget about comics completely because I'd drawn my own comics. You know, I, I felt I was getting somewhere. Um, <clears throat> and um, I'd, I'd already discovered Mobius and Drouet and Bilal and the, the artists that I loved when I was at art college in 1980, I think, 1981 maybe. Mm -hmm. um, there, was a, an, <laughs> there was this really grotty 2nd bookshop that mostly sold pornography. And you, you walked into this very dark, tiny little room, and on the shelves surrounding you were all this, all these porn mags. And the flip side was the the, the, the comic books. Well, the, he had loads of old back issues of Mel Hurlan, um, but they were behind the counter, as if they were the porn. <laughs> and you know, the porn was on display, but you had to ask quietly for these comic books. And I, I bought I bought as many as I could afford at the time, and this, this that's how I discovered Mobius and, and those guys. Um, but um, was that a big so, turning point for you, as far as like seeing what you could do with comics, or kind of understanding? Yeah, huge. And that was that was the one reason. Um, maybe okay, maybe the second reason is I'd, I'd seen 2008 AD and was blown away by that. In I don't know 77 when it when it came out. Um, and because I, you know, I'd, I'd been, I'd grown up sort of reading, maybe t I, had, I hadn't been into superhero comics at all because they just weren't available where I lived. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up with Giles. I don't know whether Giles is known in the states or in Canada. Um, he was a, a, a an illustrator for the, the Daily Express newspaper, and he just do these spot cartoons. I yeah, no, I know. I know who that is. Yeah. Um, uh, amazing artist. And um, that was kind of my inspiration to become an artist, was seeing these Giles books. We didn't get the newspaper, but my dad used to buy the collections every Christmas. Every Christmas they'd do a, a big you know, yearly collection. And I'd sit for hours reading through these things or, or actually just looking at the pictures because they were so interesting. And I didn't get a lot of the jokes because I was very young at the time. And very political, you know, and I just wasn't interested in politics. Um, whole different story nowadays, but um, <laughs> boy, uh, <clears throat> don't get me started. But um, so yeah, um, trying to find my way back to where we were. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I kind of I was, uh, or despite all this interest in in art, like I said, I, I felt more inclined to be a musician, and. Um, I, I went down to London um, kind of on the hope to, to actually break one or the other. I, I was going to go in one direction or the other, and going to London was going to be um, the thing that settled the issue. And I, I, um, I tried to get in touch with, with music studios to try and become a, a session drummer. But at the same time, I signed up um, with a, an agent in Covent Garden in London, an, an art agent, and he promised me the world, and he said he was going to get me comic book work, and he had all these contacts. Um, and nothing came of it. Oh, hang on a minute. My, my daughter's just come home from school. I'll just say hello. Won't be long, sweet pea. Um, oh, she's got a cake. That looks nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so this agent promised me the world and actually put me in touch with 2000 AD. Um, I, I did some sample pages for them. 
and uh, they didn't get back to me. And I, I remember standing in in Euston Station in, in London, um, and actually phoned. I can't remember who the editor was at the time. Way back, um, probably 1982. Um, <clears throat> And uh, they said they'd got the stuff, but they didn't like it because it was too American. There were no backgrounds, and um, they just couldn't work with me. It wasn't suitable for what they'd publish. Um, so that kind of made me think, well, maybe I should you know, work for an American company if I'm going to do comic books. Um, so while I was in London, anyway, I got, this, I got this call from a band, and I ended up joining a band full-time, a touring band, and we toured all over England to start with. Then we went all over Spain and Italy, um, and American Air Force bases mostly. And then ended up doing a two-month tour in Abu Dhabi in <laughs> the United Arab Emirates, wow. which was which, which was an experience in itself. That was a um, very different time then too, like they weren't as uh, technologic, like as developed with all the oil money as they are now. Yeah, it was a completely different place. Um, really quite run down, very seedy. There was the the, you know, the beginnings of, of that. I think we're talking, let's see, by now it's probably 84, 85. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and yeah, it was it was quite a grotty place. Um, and the heat was appalling and, and there was an adventure after an adventure out there. It was, it was quite amazing. But um, while I was there, I kind of realized I hate this. I hate gigging every night, doing the same thing every night. Um, you know, I, I don't get out very much. I, I just have to, you know, we sleep all day and we, we gig at night. And it was just, it was kind of doing my head in a bit. And I'd, I'd self-published my own book just a couple of years before, um, Tom Tom McCoob. And um, I kind of showed, I took an issue of, of it with me and showed the guys and they thought what, what are you what are you doing being a drummer you're not a bad drummer but this is great stuff you know you should be a comic book artist so it did one thing led to another and i, I came back from from abu dhabi and decided well, i'm going to quit the band and do all i can to to become a you know to become a drummer that's <laughs> to become a comic book artist and in between, just actually before we went on tour, let me try and get this 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 right because it's it's a long time ago. Um, I'd met Mobius at uh, a London comic book convention, and um, I, I was saying, you know, I, I showed him this Tom Tom McCoo pamphlet I'd, I'd made, and it was just a twenty-page thing. Um, it was a hundred-page epic graphic novel squeezed down into 20 pages didn't make much sense but but jean really liked it and he, he kind of you know he thought it was very interesting especially because one panel was clearly ripped off of his work <laughs> <laughs> that that really warmed warmed his cockles because he, he thought that was hilarious um you know it, it was such a blatant ripoff um and he's you know he said oh can i can i take this i'd like to take it home with me and read it so of course i was you know on cloud nine i thought it was amazing and i said you know can you give me any advice he said well um you know you you clearly want to be a comic book artist and you clearly can be which to me was absolute you know groundbreaking news um he said all you need to do is go back to art college because i told him I'd, 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 I'd been unsuccessful at art college 
hated it. He said, you, you need to learn classical art. So this stuck in my mind. And when I came back from the, from the tour in, in, out in Arabia, I, I decided, right, that's it. You know, Mobius's words kept echoing back in my head. And I thought, right, okay, I'll go back to art college, give it another go. And, and forget about music and, and try to be a, try to be a comic book artist. And so, what kind of classical art were you looking at when you say classical? Um, well, it turned it turned out that that was a disaster as well because <laughs> um, there was only one teacher that that was interested in teaching a guy called Ian Herring, who sadly passed away a number of years ago. But he was an amazing teacher. He was he totally inspired anybody he talked to. And he used to run a, um, a cartoon workshop, <clears throat> which was after school in, in the evenings. And I, I, I joined up with that. Um, but it was mostly for spot cartoonists, because he was a spot cartoonist. Um, and, but he knew, he knew his stuff. He, he knew about comic books and, and gave me a lot of information that I hadn't had. Because, um, like I say, I didn't know anybody that was a comic book artist. I was completely on my own, and um, so he was an inspiration. But the, the whole experience at the art college was, you know, pretty much a waste of time, and, and it wasn't what Mobius had, had hoped for me. Um, <clears throat> but the, the the art I'd got into, the classical art, um, I think I'd already been aware of, of classical art. You know, I'd, I'd been to art galleries with my dad and my mum. Um, but I got heavily into the pre-Raphaelite movement, okay. um, and um, Edward Byrne Jones, particularly um, Rossetti. Uh, those guys just, you know, you know. If I, in fact, we, we did an art show. At a friend of mine that I met at art college. Um, we we sort of we've been building up this this portfolio of comic book artwork. Um, he was really into um, Bernie Wrightson. Uh, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen any of Bernie Wrightson's stuff up until then, and, and it, that blew my mind. And, and so Chris was really into Bernie Wrightson, and we did this art show together. And in the stall next to us, <clears throat> there was this guy who was a couple of years younger than us, and he'd done a full-sized, well, actually, no, it was a half-sized representation of one of Edward Byrne Jones's paintings. And it was incredible. It was like, you know, he traced it, but he clearly hadn't, because um, that would have been impossible to do, break into the art gallery every night. Um, and it, but the, the, the odd thing was, we both wanted to be sort of, but at this time, sort of classical artists. You know, we, we, we were totally into the pre-flight movement. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and this guy that could paint like one of them wanted to be a comic book artist. And, you know, we were kind of looking at his stuff thinking, oh, we want to be like you. And he was looking at our stuff thinking, we, I want to be like you guys. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, that, that, that was kind of, that, that was the, the, the artwork I was, I'd, I'd got into in that period. Now, you spent some time with Mobius, like an extensive amount of time? I wouldn't say extensive. Um, all too fleeting, really, on, on retrospect, but, um, yeah, the first the first time I met him <clears throat> was at, like I said, the, the comic convention in London in um, 1988, I think it was. Um, actually, no, it must have been after I came back from from being in the band, the touring band. 
Um, yeah, pretty. I think it must have been. Um, and I was looking through his portfolio. His, his then agent, Jean-Marc Officier, had this portfolio on a table and was just full of Mobius original artwork. Uh, I'd, I'd give anything to go back in time and, and look through that again. And the guy couldn't get rid of me. I was just wanting to look at every piece and give it every piece the amount of time it deserved. And I was soaking this stuff up. I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been into Mobius for a couple of years, and, and but to see it live was, was amazing for me. So during this, this, probably I was there for an hour at least, <clears throat> Jean-Marc and I were talking a lot, and, and I said, you know, would it be possible to meet Mobius? And, you know, I've got my own portfolio with me. I'd love, it means so much to me to, to be able to meet him and, and get some advice from him. So, to cut a long story short, um, I ended up spending about 45 minutes with him, um, during which the, John was supposed to be going out for dinner with Art Spiegelman and Terry Gilliam. <laughs> right? And he, every so often, Terry Gilliam would poke his head around the door in this, in this room and, and say, you know, come on, John, we're, we're, we're waiting for you here. We're you know, supposed to be going for dinner. Uh, just the, the, the whole, looking back, I wish I'd had a camera or a, a better mental picture of it all. I'm sitting with this, this, this god of comic books and my god of filmmaking, and, and I was a huge Python fan. And there's Terry Gilliam pulling faces at me. It was a bizarre, bizarre experience. Um, <clears throat> so, so, you know, Mobius clearly liked what I was doing and, and could see that I was... I was my intentions were pure, and I wanted to be the best comic book artist I, I could be, and, and, and I was interested in this very esoteric line of, of comic books, you know, inspired by the heavy metal magazines I'd seen. Um, and, um, and I'd, like I say, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of, I'd started talking with Jean-Marc, and we'd, we'd got on pretty well. And um, <clears throat> then a couple of years later, there was, a convention in Alexandra Palace, and in the mean, in in between those two events, I'd written to Jean Marc because I thought I, I need I need to get a jump forward because I don't know anybody in the comic book industry. I don't know anything about it, um, but I want to get into it somehow. And I'd met these two guys, um, and I thought, well, I'm, these are the only contacts I've got. So I wrote to Jean Marc saying, you know. Could I could I get in touch with Mobius because I'd love to maybe do something with you or you know be an assistant to Mobius or something like that. Just you know throw ideas at me and I'll, I'll go for it. Um, so Jean-Marc got in touch with Mobius. Mobius said um, get him to do some sample pages because at the time they were building up ideas for the spin-off of the Airtight Garage that um, Jerry Bingham was doing and Eric Schoenauer and Cam Kennedy. Um, all these guys would, would be lined up to do this stuff. And, and John thought maybe, you know, maybe Dave could do, could be a part of that. Um, and in the meantime, when I left art college, I'm, I'm hoping this, this is all, it sounds a bit confusing, all that they're trying to get the time I, I can't remember it, so it's probably not going to come across very clearly. <clears throat> um, in the meantime, after the... Um, of course, that's right. I, when, when I met Mobius for the first time in London, he said, go back to art college, which mm -hmm. I, I, I did. 
But I was only there for six months because I'd been sending stuff off to to Marvel and DC, and I got a call from Mar uh, from Marvel UK, and they gave me a job doing uh, six issues of Zorro, based on these two blatant rip-offs of Mobius's Blueberry character that I'd done for the portfolio. And they said, oh, you can draw horses, you can draw deserts, you can have this job doing Zorro, which I did, which was a disaster. My deadlines, I didn't hit one of them. Um, and so so then I meet up, I did I did these sample pages for, for Jean. We met up again in, in Ali Pali in, in London, another convention. And we sat together, and we we got on really well. And um, we sort of started setting up that I was I was going to do one of these these airtight garage spin-off comics. Um, I think a couple of them had come out already, um, and he 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 really liked the samples I'd done, apart from one of Major Gruber where his hat just wasn't sitting on his head correctly, and he he kind of really quite harshly criticized that <laughs> said, you, you, you know if a guy's wearing a hat it has to be sitting on his head not you know coming out at you uh, out of perspective or there was just something wrong with it he, he thought was dreadful um which was great you know to, to be able to get criticized by someone you've got so much respect for it wasn't hurtful at all it was like yeah i'm really learning from this mm -hmm. and i never forgot that every time i draw someone with a hat i remember that moment uh, you know, these things stick in your head when you when you know you've got so much respect for somebody and they they give you this advice. So that that was kind of where our our relationship started, and because the the series was cancelled, um, Jean Marc thought, well, you know, I've got this artist who's who's begging to work with us. Um, I'll I'll we'll you know we'll we'll have to get another book together, and that's how Tongue Lash came about. As a, as a response to the, the Airtight Garage series being cancelled. The filthy, filthy book. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'm very proud of how filthy that is. <clears throat> it, no, I, 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 sorry. I was uh, looking through it with some friends. Who like, It just seems like at some point you're just like, okay, how can I make this weirder? Okay, I'm going to get this weird, overweight guy with a bat head. And... Yeah. It yeah, good. it's pr it's pretty sick. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know where to stand on it because, at the time, it was an amazing project to work on. Um, when when it started, I understood that that Mobius um, was completely aware of it and that you know he was he'd given it um, his go ahead. As it turned out, he didn't know anything about it, mm. and got very upset <clears throat> when he walked into his comic shop in Paris one day and saw two of his characters on the cover of a comic book and he got furious as you'd expect yeah um, and no disrespect to Jean-Marc who was writing it and his wife Randy um, but I think there was a misunderstanding between them I think Jean-Marc had mentioned it to him but Jean had forgotten um, <clears throat> And what John Mark had done was, uh, when the, um, the erotic portfolio that Mobius had, had produced, um, there were two characters that jumped out at John Mark as being, you know, potentially good characters, kind of like um, uh, based on the Avengers, uh, you know, the, the British Steed spy. Steed and Miss Steel. That's the one. 
um, <clears throat> which he, he, he was he was really into British TV, Doctor Who, and all that kind of stuff. And so he, these these characters jumped out at him, um, and Jean-Marc and Mobius had been talking about the, the Mayans um, and their fascination with the, the Mayan civilization, and they were talking about you know maybe doing a book together <clears throat> on that subject or with that as a background. And John was busy. I think he was doing um, uh, whatever he was doing. He was he was super busy at the time, and so Jean-Marc kind of went off on his own with these ideas, not thinking that Mobius thought they were his ideas. They were kind of joint ideas that they that sort of these ideas had come up in in a conversation, and you know, mm-hmm. um, so. So yes, yeah, so the, the, the first book uh, I did, thinking Mobius was behind it, and I, I, I you know, we we talked about it, and we decided that it was kind of an extension of the Mobius universe. Um, so I was putting in um, like sculptures that were based on Mobius illustrations in the background. Um, obviously, the two main characters were based on these two characters in a portfolio, but I was. I mean, I did a lot of re- both of us did. John Mark and I did a lot of research in the Mayans, and I felt it was as much my work as Mobius, and far more my work than Mobius's. It was clearly indebted to Mobius, and I made a point of, of when it was finally published um, to to have it very clearly stated at the beginning <clears throat> that it, you know it was it was a homage to Mobius mm-hmm. and his work. Um, but then, like I say, Mobius walked into his comic book shop one day, sees this thing, goes goes insane, gets in touch with Jean-Marc. Jean-Marc gets in touch with me and says, oh, I've got some bad news. Mobius isn't very happy. don't know how this has happened, but he, he, he's clearly forgotten we were doing the book. So I wrote to Jean <clears throat> a very heartfelt letter saying, you know, I'm desperately sorry that he didn't understand what was going on. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was to upset him and feel, you know, make him feel like I was ripping him off. And he phoned me. Um, I, I, in fact, I take record the phone the phone conversation because I was I was shocked that that Mobius would phone me. Um, this is like quite early on, <clears throat> before we we'd sort of got to know each other. And um, and he was wonderful about it because he, he said, you know, it, my letter touched him deeply. That you know, he, he could see that I was I was desperately upset that, that I'd upset him. And um, during the conversation, I said, well, I was hoping to do a second book or maybe a third book. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've looked through it. I, I love it. Um, if, you know, if you want to do 10 books, you go ahead and, it, you know, <laughs> it's great. You've now got my backing. But um, there was clearly a misunderstanding between myself and Jean-Marc and, and I wasn't told about it and blah, blah, blah. So, so that was like a really scary thing because I'd spent uh, eight months drawing this book putting everything into it that I had and then you know almost as a as a, as a thank you to Mobius for helping me get into the industry and then he, get, he turns around and hates the thing yeah <laughs> so um, so anyway it all turned out you know pretty well and uh, we, we started our sort of you know our, our, our communications from then on because he, he could see that I wasn't trying to rip him off Um and in fact, we, we met up in Paris at one point, and um, we did a couple of times, but this, this one time, we were in, um, 
I think it was Dargo's offices in Paris, <coughs> publisher, and um, I was saying that I'd, I'd been criticised for being a Mobius ripoff, and he laughed, and he said, "Seriously, Dave, you, you know, forget what people think." Um, in fact, it was Julius Schwartz. Uh, I was in San Diego, and um, Julius Schwartz kind of sauntered over to the, the table and, and looked just flicked through the first issue of Tongue Lash because we then published it, published it with Dark Horse mm-hmm. and um, he was flicking through it and he, he just he threw it down and he said oh, another Mobius ripoff and walked away and of course this, this scarred me deeply because I wasn't ripping Mobius off you know the book was as far as I was concerned was done with his understanding you know and, and it was a homage and there was only a few things in there that were Mobius everything else was mine um, so I, I mentioned this to John when we were in Paris and he laughed and he said look you Jeff Darrow Jose Ladron and myself are brothers <laughs> and we we come from the same planet we come from the same planet out in space and we have the same dreams and we you know when we dream we see the same pictures and he said if people say you're ripping me off you know ignore them um, because it's just not true. Mm-hmm. So to hear that from him was, you know, quite a beautiful thing. It's good company. Because, you know, say again, sorry. It's good company. Yeah, slightly. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I was, I, 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 how would you take, you know, words like that from, from someone you, you deeply admire? It was the greatest honor he could, anybody could give me. Um, he was such a great person. He was he was amazing, and it was just oh, this last week that was the, the the anniversary of his leaving the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't I can't believe it was a year ago that he died. I even Very shocking. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was in Portland um, with uh, with Brandon Graham and some other folks, and uh, including Ian. <coughs> the uh, curator of the Mobius Tumblr, um, and there was a lot of a lot of heavy hearts. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. Now we've all gone bummed out. <laughs> say, say. We, we've all, we're, we're all bummed out now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what my, my friend, <clears throat> um, who was uh, equally uh, into Mobius, um, when, when when John passed away last year, he said that we shouldn't be sad. We should celebrate the fact that we've had the the opportunity to see this man's work and to have met him and and to enjoyed what he did what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if anything, at least he had a life where he was allowed to be who he was and to produce all this amazing work that has changed so many people's lives. And it's for the back for the better. Yeah. You know, and, and, and he's inspired countless people, um, you know, to be better artists and, and that's kind of that's what he that's what he always did. He, you you you'd meet him and he'd inspire you to be a better person. Which I think is is astounding. He did I I can't think of many people like that. Um <clears throat> who were so blessed with, with this this light of, of uh, generosity and, and um, just like you'd be inspired just meeting him. 
you know, or just, you know, just looking through his books, would, 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 you know, it's an astounding experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a handful of people like that, and, um, I think, you know, we were lucky to, to have been blessed with his work. But, of course, he was, he was stolen away in a very horrible way, and then far too early in his life. Mm-hmm. Um... I don't think we'll ever be able to quite mark just how uh, how important he's come no. for a lot of people. It's, uh, Absolutely, yeah, I totally agree.
Now, within your own kind of personal biography, while you're working on Tongue Lash, um, you're also working on Batman at the same time. That was when you started working for That's right, yeah. American publishers. Now, I, I was reading in the back of one of the Tongue Lashes where you had gotten an offer to work on, I think it was Force Works. Yes. Yeah, that was quite a way before that, yeah. And then you got the Batman gig, and you had to leave Force Works. <laughs> and and yeah. I gotta say that reading that, I kind of laughed and like, who would want to be remembered for the guy working on Force Works? <laughs> um, it was, uh, uh, that was a horrible experience um, <clears throat> because, I'd, yeah, I, I was delighted to get. I'd, I'd been headhunted from Marvel UK to work for Marvel US. It was amazing. I thought, right, I'm getting somewhere now because all the work I did for Marvel UK. I hated, um, you know, I, it, it was, I didn't like the deadlines, I didn't like, I, some of it I inked, but most of it I didn't, and some of the inkers I got just didn't get it, um, and the, the colouring was, you know, in, in those days, sort of <clears throat> late 80s, early 90s, um, was, you know, very, very basic, the colourists would get, you know, $11 a page, or $20 a page, yeah, they wouldn't be inspired, um, and no, so they'd be cutting stacks of ruby leaf at that time, probably. Yeah, um, you know, so, so I'd be getting these books from the, you know, sent from the publisher, and I'd, I'd look at it, and comparing to to what I'd, I'd done on in the pencil pages, you know, I'd put all my effort into it, and it'd look like I just couldn't be bothered because the inking would be bad or the coloring would, you know, ruin it, and I was just really unsatisfied with the whole process. Um, and so, you know, I got this work for, for Marvel US and, and, you know, I thought, oh, there's definitely a step in the right direction, but this isn't where I want to be because, I, you know, I hadn't been a, a Marvel or a DC fan. Um, I didn't discover Marvel Comics until I was quite late, I suppose, maybe 13 or 14. Um, I, you know, I'd, my dad went past a news agents one day to, to get some cigarettes. I went in with him, and there was, this is in Liverpool, because I grew up on the Wirral, which is in between Liverpool, the peninsula in between Liverpool and North Wales. Um, very rural place. Um, so in this in this city, there was one shop I found with, where they sold comic books, American comic books, and that was the first time I'd seen any of them. So my, you know, I'd, I'd got into comic books through Tintin, and Asterix, the collections of those books that I'd, I'd, I'd luckily found in bookshops. Uh, like I said earlier, the, the, um, um, you know, the Giles books and stuff, that's, that's where my, my inspiration had come from to be an artist. And then, so the, so the Marvel stuff was kind of like a, an afterthought almost, and I wasn't overly impressed with a lot of stuff I saw apart from a couple of issues that blew me away. Um, uh, and so, so you know, working for Marvel US, <clears throat> you know, I, I knew it was a, a step in the right direction. Um, and I did, I did a couple of issues of Forceworks. I didn't know the characters very well. I didn't feel at home at all. And it was again, it was the the conveyor belt system that I didn't like. You know, I was, I was starting to grow a, quite a, a, a deep resentment for the whole system. Um, because, you know, I'd, I'd spend all day drawing a page and then somebody who didn't really care as much as I 
would, would then ink it and then somebody who, who really didn't give a shit would colour it and you know it just it just wasn't you know wasn't interesting to me so I didn't have um, any great love for that whole process um, and then I went to well, it, it kind of it, it, uh, um, when I was working for Marvel UK, it, it, the work had just stopped. It, it, I wasn't getting any more work, and it, it seemed like I really had to do something serious to to get into the industry. And, uh, the, the work I'd done for Marvel UK wasn't very inspiring. It wasn't very good, um, and so I went to New York. I spent the last pennies I had, and my mum lent me some money. And I, I went to New York, and I went to the, the comic convention there, and I left my portfolio with a few people and um, with I don't think I left it with DC but somehow I got a call one day from Scott Peterson at DC saying I've got your portfolio here it's great would you like to do a Batman book and this is when I was working on Forceworks because um, you know maybe eight months maybe a year later um, so of course, you know, I knew Batman. I'd, I'd grown up watching the TV series; absolutely loved it. And um, I had a few Batman comics, but they were, you know, pretty difficult to get where I was living. Mm. Um, so I didn't know much about the com the comic book world of Batman. But yeah, okay, I'll I'll do a comic book on Batman. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I'd heard of, I'd heard of Matt Wagner. Um, he, he was writing this this book they were offering me. So I had to I had to tell. Um, the guys at Marvel that um, that I was going to leave, and, and the atmosphere was was really quite scary because mm -hmm. they, they weren't happy. Um, I, I don't know what it's like now. The whole I, I I've just I don't follow the politics of comics these days very much. I try not to. Um, I think it gets in the way of, you know proper creativity. <clears throat> but there was certainly a big battle going on between Marvel and DC at this time. And um, they just they just hated me for moving to DC, and I had to say, look, look, I'm working on Forceworks. Nobody has heard of Forceworks. I come from England, where you know we don't have um, a culture in comic books, and so you know when people ask me what I'm doing, I say I'm doing Forceworks, and they just look at me blank. And I say, well, it's got Iron Man in it, and most of them still look at me blank. <laughs> but then the Black Sabbath song. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. They've heard, of, they've heard of Black Sabbath. Yeah, oh, you're doing a Black Sabbath comic. Yeah, but, the, but you, you mentioned Batman to them, and they're like, "Oh, right, I see. Yeah, I understand that concept. Yes, I've heard of Batman." And so, you know, how could I resist a Batman job? Um, and it was the only superhero that I'd, I'd really loved, apart from Iron Fist. I remember getting this Iron Fist comic, and thinking it was the bee's knees. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Um, so, yeah, so I, I left Marvel um, <clears throat> almost forever uh, and, and started on Batman, and then my, my, my relationship with DC and Batman grew from there. Were the Patriots better at DC at that point? Um, I think, yeah, I think because it was a one-off. It was, it was um, the Riddle Factory, it was called. It was... Um, tied in with, with the Batman and Robin movie that was coming out at the time they were it was all part of the promotion for the movie mm -hmm. um, so I think there was a special rate on it so it was better 
but then I went back, you know, when, when they started offering me regular work um, <clears throat> on Shadow of the Bat, the, the, the level went down probably to about Marvel, Marvel Race. I'm not sure, I can't really remember. It's been a while. It has been quite a while. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, 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 not a, I'm not a big fan of money, to be honest with you. I hate the whole concept of money. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't really pay attention to what I'm getting paid. As long as I'm getting paid and it doesn't sound ridiculous, then, you know, I'm happy to do it. As now, long as it pays the bills. I was looking, I reread all those shows about, and I remember when they're coming out, really liking the stuff in particular that you had been doing on those it was kind of like a standout from that run of you know generally mediocre Batman comics at the time right and, it, and it's interesting you're talking earlier about inkers and just how much that does affect your work and I can see like certain issues you have some inkers that just don't get it yeah and it's just a lot of you know edgy lines that kind of take away from the smoothness and other folks completely get it and kind of help support the work yeah absolutely I mean that the first um, oh god I'm uh, trying to remember his name now uh, the, the first ink on Shadow of the Bat was amazing John someone oh god I feel awful now I can't remember his name um, and the, the, fir the first issue I did he inked and it was absolutely stunning and he totally got what I wanted to do um, I wish I had one, at, one to hand I might be able to find one while I'm talking because uh, I would like to give him credit because it was amazing um, And but unfortunately he was so good he got nabbed onto doing um, onto a regular book um, can't remember which that book was either um but yeah, it was it was interesting because um, so I'm kind of I'm, I'm looking through I'm also knocking things over. Um, here we go. I think I've found one. Um, just bear with me. Where are we? Where's the ink? Dell. John Dell. John Dell. That's it. Now, he was brilliant. Really, really understood. Uh, he was clearly a good artist. You know, a lot, a lot of inkers, I don't think, um, <clears throat> can particularly draw very well. They're just fascinated with the technique of inking and, you know, the whole smell of ink, and they, they just love that that inking world that they, they create. But they're not, you know, very gifted artists. But I think John was definitely a very gifted artist, and his quality of line was, was beautiful. Uh, he was clearly into European comics as well as American comics. Um, so our styles knit together really well, um, and I, I was devastated when they told me that he was he'd been pushed onto another book. I um, go ahead. No, so what are we going to say? I just that one issue. I loved how ridiculous it was. Um, I think I was watching email. Just Alan Grant was uh, seemed to be having a lot of fun. Um, the first issue you do, Batman gets overdosed on ketamine. And ends up yeah. in a K-hole by a uh, supervillain named Narcosis. And it's just so, I don't know, it's so 90s, it's so of the time. Yeah, Just definitely. like, Batman does ketamine, you know? like. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, Alan is um, <clears throat> yeah, a fantastic person. I know Alan really well. God bless him. And, and uh, yeah, um, he's a wonderful person. 
and he he likes to push the boundaries as much as he can. Yeah. Um, he, he's quite an anarchist, um, a peaceful one, but you know he he, he hates the concept of um, just you know living life not pushing boundaries. Basically, you know, he, he wants to see how far we can go as human beings. Um, he doesn't like sitting back on his laurels. He likes to try new things. And I, I totally went for that. You know, I'm absolutely totally with him. Um, and and one of the, the story I most enjoyed was the Poison Ivy one, all about cannabis. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> and it was... Alan was actually forced by the editorial staff uh, at the end. On the, I think it was a three-issue story. And the, the end of it, they felt, you know, we have to tell everybody that, um, that, you know, you really shouldn't do cannabis because it's evil and nasty and horrible. So we had to write in at the end, Robin standing up in front of his class at school and giving this, this, this little sort of acidic speech on, on how, how bad cannabis is for people. And, but the whole point of the story, which Alan was trying to, to get through to these people in the DC staff, was the you know it was clearly a horrible horrific story yeah um and that was the point you know you didn't have to underline the fact that you know do you have to have one of the heroes saying cannabis is bad because the whole story was saying that yeah you know but you know that was that was kind of what we were well it was it was because it was it was like this cannabis was bad because it's the one that the supervillain made normally it's not so bad and, right, yeah. and it was just this weird like I'm easy going now guys because I was grown with pot plants and <laughs> it was just like I don't know how he managed to get so much of that in there like one issue is basically here's how marijuana got outlawed and how it's kind of screwed up oh and yeah. the last page Robin gives a speech it was yeah it, amazing and then at the end awful yeah um, but that was that was the system in DC at the time um, and I, I can't imagine they've got any better oh I Honestly, I don't think even that much would have gotten in now. Like, I think the fact that he Probably made a no. supervillain based on a pot plant. <laughs> I but he, think... was, he, he, he was a human head, yeah. and the rest of him was made of cannabis. <laughs> that, that's not going to happen these days, is it? No. No. <laughs> um, so I suppose we were lucky to get even that done. Um, but they were, they were dead against it, and they were, they were really worried. And they treated Alan like shit. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll support Alan you know, to the end of the days, because he was a great writer, he, you know, like I say, he was very innovative, and, and, and you know, didn't like going with what was politically correct at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, um, the, the fights that they had were, were, were dreadful, and it was completely unnecessary. And comic books, from, from my point of view, should be a platform for free speech, and it's, it clearly wasn't. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, were, they were so political. And, and obviously, being a big company, a big multi-million dollar company, they've got shareholders that they have to keep happy. And, you know, it, it gets very convoluted and very dark. And, um, you know, it, it's sad that when, you know, the comic book industry is, is, is tainted with that, with, with big industry, um, <clears throat> it, it's, oh, I find it quite sick, really. Um, and I didn't get on with with the, the editorial staff. Um, <clears throat> in fact, we had a huge battle when I when I got the the world's finest job. 
that just <clears throat> excuse me that just turned into a nightmare that the art on that seemed like you'd put more work into that than anything else well the, the thing was i I'd, I'd done 12 issues of shadow of the bat and they offered me another 12 and i turned it down because i just wasn't happy um i felt that alan you know I, well, I knew that alan was getting pissed off with the politically correct attitude they had mm -hmm. um he, he his work was being stifled um <clears throat> i felt my work was being stifled because i didn't get to choose an ink I, I didn't get to choose colorists although pam rambo who colored most of them I, we got on really well and she's a great person um but again you know she was being paid probably below you know you know minimum wage yeah um so she wasn't doing her best work because she's a very talented artist herself. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I just, I again, wasn't happy with the whole conveyor belt system. And at that point, Tung Lash had come out um, and had been very widely accepted and, 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 you know, highly praised. And it was something I really enjoyed. And inking my own work was something I really enjoyed. And having control over the colouring... Um, so we had a long discussion. It took a couple of months, but I, I agreed with them to do a special project. <clears throat> and Scott Peterson did a good job in, in finding a special project for me, um, and which was the world's finest thing. And the whole point of the book was that it was going to be a European's version of Batman and Superman. It wasn't going to be an American book. It was going to be European, um, it was going to be written by American, but the artwork was going to be purely European. And I was going to ink it um, in the same style and the same approach as I did Tongue Lash. And I was going to get the same colorist, Scarlett Smolkowski, mm -hmm. who at the time was Kaza's partner. Um, <clears throat> Kaza of, of heavy metal fame. Oh, uh, uh, Kaz... Um, Kaza. Underworld? Oh, Kaza, sorry. Okay. Um... So, so you know, I, I, it was it was an absolute joy. This, this project, I was going to get a book out that was going to look like Tongue Lash, the same colorist, which was you know, beautiful work, um, and I was going to be able to you know have enough time to, to, to produce it myself. And and it, it, it started off. I started drawing the first book <clears throat> um, with with these things in place, and then. Um, Let's see, I'd almost finished the first book. The first book was 40-something pages, and then there were going to be eight in-between issues, which were the regular 22-page or 24-page books, and the last one was going to be 40 pages. Um, and they, some idiot somewhere decided we need to bring the, the, the deadline forward. You know, DC have to make money at a standard rate, and they have to satisfy their shareholders, and there was a dip in the money they were making in the future, in, in like March the following year. There was a dip. So they thought, right, we're going to have to bring this book out then so we can increase the flow of money. No, uh, no thought of the artists involved. Um, <clears throat> so I was phoned one day and told that I was going to have to get an inker, that I wasn't going to ink it myself. Um, and it took the whole process slowed me down because they were messing around with with different inkers and at one point 
they offered me an ink I won't I won't name him he's a great artist but to ink my stuff would have been just a nightmare just completely two opposite styles mm. um so I was I was tearing my hair out because this project had fallen apart you know it was it was a it was an amazing project and then now it was turning into a bit of a nightmare and then it got to Christmas and I got a phone call this is after we decided on Inca um uh, and um, we got Robert Campanella. I, I ended up having to look for an Inca. They basically gave up looking for an Inca themselves. So I ended up looking through all of the DC staff Incas <clears throat> and found Robert Campanella, who was excellent. I thought, okay, he, he's got this wonderful clean line. He'll be great. But it was against my better, you know, my better judgment. I didn't want an Inca on the budget, but they were forcing me to. So we found Robert, and he was great. And then I get this phone call at Christmas saying, oh, um, <clears throat> can you phone Scarlett and tell her she's sacked? Oi. So I said, <laughs> you know, no, fuck off. Um, I'm not going to do that. It's ridiculous. You know, um, why? Well, because, you know, the deadlines and all this lot. And I said, but it's, it's you that's been causing all the deadline problems. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm having to spend all this time trying to find Incas and, and you know, you've caused me nightmares you know, I, I'm not working as, as proficiently as I should do. Um, but anyway, look at a long story short, I had to phone Scarlett and say that she was sacked and try and explain to her, you know, um, <clears throat> why, you know, it was it was happening. And she was really, really upset because, um, you know, she'd been working in the European industry and to get an American book for her was something wonderful. Um, you know, she was really excited about it and she really enjoyed working with me. We had a great relationship. So that basically was the last straw for me. Um, and of course, while all this is going on, Carl Kessel was hearing about what was going on. Him and I were communicating. and We got on really well, and he could see as the issues were coming in that I was, I was getting you know despondent, and my work had started to slack. I wasn't putting as much effort in, but also um, I, wasn't, I didn't have enough time to put the effort in I'd put in the first book when I thought I was going to be inking it. <clears throat> um, and sort of ink, you know, penciling blindly, because I didn't know what the inking was going to be like, um, you know, because we hadn't got any samples back from Robert, so I was kind of working in the dark for a lot of the time. And then the stuff started coming in. It was great, but it wasn't what it was meant to be. And then they, they found a colorist, um, and he, he just, he was a good colorist, but he just wasn't scarlet. And so, I, I, like I say, I got very despondent with the project and eventually said, look, I'm quitting. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, you promised me all these things and one by one you've taken them away from me. And it's, that's, it's, it's just completely unfair. It's, it's just not right. And I don't give a shit what you think of me. I'm just, I'm just not doing it anymore. Because it was, it was causing me serious pain, almost physically. Um, and, at the, and in the background, I was going through a divorce, and uh, it was it was you know pretty nasty. We'd been married for a, a good while, and, and and it was pretty ugly what was going on. And so I was going through a nightmare personally, and at work. So I, I thought I can't deal with this. I'm going to have to quit. Um, excuse me. So um, yeah, so I turned my back on them, and of course that that just <laughs> they didn't take that very well. Um, they thought I was the devil, um, and they, 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 we, there was a big dispute, and they, they tried to convince me to find other artists to replace 
myself, and I thought, well, okay, I, I, I need to make this book as good as possible, even if I'm not working on it. I still have a responsibility to the people that I want to read it. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to get the first book and be into it, and the second book and the third books were okay. And then when I, when I leave, I want I don't want it to drop. And I want to have some control over it. And I realized that I, I, I was given the opportunity to do that. So um, a friend of mine, Pete Doherty, who had done a lot of work with 2008 days, great bloke, um, I offered him the job, and he, he started on it. Um, but again, he the, the deadline pressures by then were just insane, and he had loads of problems with it, um, because they were asking for an issue every two weeks. Oh, Jesus. And it was it was just pathetic. It was ridiculous. So then they started treating him like shit, and that was just unfair. So he quit, <laughs> um, and they had to make the, you know, they had to fill in the gaps themselves. And it just it just turned into an right, ugly old mess. And poor old Carl, you know, he 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 was he was really inspired by the project to begin with, and he, he thought it was a chance for him to do something he hadn't done before. And he got halfway through, and he he started, you know, getting pressure off them. Um, you know, forcing him to add characters he wasn't interested in, um, to try and tie in continuity with other books, and that was totally against what we'd all agreed oh, on. Um, so even Carl, you know, he did he wasn't producing his best work. He, he admitted it to me, said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed because, you know, all this shit that's gone on with you artists, the way you've been treated, as as you know, kind of backfired on me, and I, I can't I can't be inspired with it anymore. And, you know, halfway through, it just drops in quality and, and you know. So <clears throat> I was told I'd never work in comics again by a number of people at DC. Um, and uh, so in, in 99, I, you know, when I quit, <clears throat> I said, okay, I'm not going to work in comic books again. I won't, you know, fuck you all. <laughs> this, was, this, this was a nightmare. Yeah, the whole thing was, was, you know, over a year of absolute utter nightmare and you know it it, it drove me insane uh, you know I, I was I, I, I got very seriously depressed because you know I'd had all this opportunity to begin with all these wonderful breaks meeting Mobius all his advice the tongue lash books um, and it, it all DC had turned it all to shit and you know <clears throat> or rather the staff at the time had turned it all to shit and the politics and it was just ridiculous and I thought okay well you know this is very this is all very depressing and I've now not got a career I've, I've lost the opportunity of being a professional musician I left that behind I'm now at an age where I'd be too old to get into that again you know what the hell am I going to do and I ended up uh, a friend dragged me into a, um, a computer game job I worked for a computer game company for a while and um, it, was, it was an absolute nightmare. Mm. It really was. It's but then you came <clears throat> back to comics. I guess you started doing work for 2000 AD at a certain point. Yeah, well, I, I got ill very seriously. Ill. Oh. I had a double. I had a double hiatus hernia um, while I was working at the computer company. Um, I was sitting at the desk and sitting in a position I wasn't used to clearly wasn't the comfortable position I was used to drawing. I was sitting in a computer working, and I started getting this pain in my chest, and I went to the doctors, and they didn't believe I had a hiatus hernia. I'd done, I'd done some research, and I, I realized it was definitely a hiatus hernia. 
but the doctors didn't believe me. And to cut a very long story short, it took me eight months to convince the doctor I needed an operation. Eventually had the operation, which was a life-saving operation because I could have got cancer if it had carried on for much longer. Um, and um, so the, the pain I was in was 24 hours a day. Eventually, you know, I, I, I quit the... Well, I, did, I, did, I, was, I was about to quit, and then the company, the computer game company closed down, so that kind of saved me a bit of embarrassment. Um, <clears throat> and so for a good five years, I was laid up in bed. Just I couldn't work. I couldn't draw. Nothing was comfortable. Wow. Um, and um, I'm not blaming DC, but that sort of... That, the situation I went through brought this on. Yeah. Um, and I can't blame DC completely because the way the way I ripped my diaphragm, which was the beginning of, of the problem, was um, I was I, I never gave up drumming, and I was always in bands. And I did a gig one night um, in I don't know ninety ninety nine ninety eight, um, and three drummers didn't turn up. There were like four bands on my band and these other three bands. And the other drummers didn't turn up, so I had to drum for all these other bands. And they were also like thrash punk <laughs> metal bands. And so I I ripped my diaphragm during that gig, and that, that, that was the beginning of it. So, <clears throat> but you know, the whole thing with with DC, the pressure and everything built up, and it, it popped, and you know. So so yeah, after my operation, years of recovery. Um, and, and getting through years of depression, um, I, I spoke to my old mate Pete Doherty again, who, who I mentioned before with the World's Finest Project, mm -hmm. and, and I was saying, I really want to get back into comics again. It's, you know, I, I've realized it's pretty much all I can do in life. Um, I can pull a pint. I'm a good seller man. You know, I, was, I was good at that, but it's not what I want to do. I want to work in the pub for the rest of my life. Um, you know, I can't get a regular job because I'm, I'm dyslexic. Um, no one will touch me, and I, it's not the kind of thing. I always, I always knew when I was at school I didn't want to work in a factory or an office. Um, it just wasn't for me. I, you know, I, I wanted something different, and I had promised myself, um, <clears throat> and trying not to be too depressing here, but my sister died when I was six. She was older than me, and um, something, I don't know, I, I, was, I was much wiser than my years, at the time, I said to myself that I have to have a good life because my sister had been stolen from me, mm -hmm. from us, and um, her life had been lost, and to kind of try and make up for that, I had to have, I had to do something with my life that was worthwhile. I didn't want to just work in a factory in an office for the rest of my life and waste my life. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd made this very deep promise to the universe and to my sister that I would do something good. So that kept coming back to me. I said, well, I've, I've, I've got to do comics. I was getting somewhere. I was almost, <clears throat> you know, I was almost on the A-list. And, you know, I, I, was, I was doing really well. I was getting all this response. There was good response from people because of the Tongue Rash books and some of the Batman work I'd done. And um, so Pete said, well, didn't you always want to work for 2018? Isn't, isn't where you started? Didn't, didn't you want to draw Judge Dredd? I thought, yeah, a light came on. I thought, yeah, of course. <clears throat> I know Alan Grant. Alan Grant is, you know, a famous 2000 AD writer. Mm -hmm. I got in touch with Alan. 
he was delighted that I, I was getting back into comic books and we talked about it and I ended up, I had a story idea that developed over a few months about buildings in Mega City One becoming sentient. Um, <clears throat> I used to watch this program called Grand Designs on British TV um, about architecture. My dad was an architect um, and um, I was fascinated with the whole subject. So, uh, and it, technology was, was developing where you could walk into your house, you had a remote control, and the computer in the house would control the heating, the lighting, you know, basically everything in the house. And I just took that to the, the ultimate result, and the ultimate result was these buildings in Mega City 1 would come to life and start destroying the city. So I mentioned this to Alan, he thought it was a great idea. Um, I wanted it as a Judge Dredd story, but um, Tharg, in his wisdom, decided it was going to be a Judge Anderson story and got Alan to write it for me. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I got back into comics, and I, it's been fantastic ever since. Yes. I, I love working for 2008. It's, uh, it's, it, um, <clears throat> I always wanted to do science fiction. I never wanted to do um, superheroes, and I was always uncomfortable working on mm. superhero books, not just because of the, the conveyor belt system. It's, uh, stylistically, you seem to shift it quite a lot, I think. I, I started drawing, um, let's see, how, can I, how can I put this, when I was working for DC, I felt obliged to work in a DC house style, mm -hmm. but all the work I did was with that in mind, um, sorry about the noise in the background, we've got a, the next door neighbours having their garden remodelled, oh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy cutting up concrete at the moment, shouldn't Charming. last long, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, <clears throat> so I, all the superhero books I did, all the Marvel work, all the all the DC stuff, I felt obliged. I was never forced into it. I, just something I I, I programmed myself to do, uh, just so it would be successful, was to work in a kind of a vague, generic house style. And I denied myself my own style, which I'd developed up until that point. When I, before I started working in comics, I'd developed this style. Um, <clears throat> which was, you know, very European, very clean line, all based on uh, my love of Hergé, um, mostly, um, and Asterix, and all that kind of stuff. And that's why, when I saw Mobius's work in Heavy Metal, I loved it so much, because it was like what I wanted to do. It was, it was oh God, there's, there's a guy working in a style that I want to perfect, but he's already doing it, and he's, he's, he's done it so well. You know, and that kind of put me off for a while. To, you know, that, that that actually convinced me to be a musician way back, because Mobius had already done it. Yeah. Mobius had already had my career. He was he was living my life. So you know, well, there was no point in me trying to do that because he's so good at it. Um, but when you know when I got back into comics in 2008, I thought, well, no, fuck that. I'm gonna I'm gonna just gonna do my own thing. And remembering what Mobius had told me. Um, I'm just going to go for it, and if people think I'm ripping Mobius off, well, that's their problem. Um, so, you know, that's so the style I use on 2000 AD you know, is is my European comic book style. Now, when did you? When was that that you got back connected with 2000 AD? How long ago was that? <clears throat> um, 2006, I think. And it was during that time that you kind of got reconnected or just a new connection with DC? 
Um, let's see. A couple of years afterwards, um, I went to. I was happily working for 2008. I was getting regular work from them, and I went to a convention in the UK and bumped into Mark Chiarello, who I'd had a lot of respect for. Still do. I think he's a great guy. Mm -hmm. um, because he he was a great artist himself. He was in charge of all the aesthetic projects at DC. All the books that looked beautiful, he was the editor of. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and he was a great guy. He, he, he bumped into me in, in this convention and said, oh, shit. Um, you know, oh, actually, in the, in the meantime, I'd, I'd been, I'd, Scott Peterson had, had got in touch with me and asked if I wanted to do some work for Wildstorm, who he was then working for. Um, so I'd done this this one-off book for him, um, and um, actually I'm not going to tell the truth, the full story here because it, it's 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 not very fair <laughs> on the people involved. But um, but Mark understood that I was basically working for Scott full time, and it wasn't the case. And so I said to to to, to Mark, No, Christ, if, if there's if there's a book you've got that you want to offer me that is that is going to fix the problem, is going to fix my history of, you know, the nightmare I had on World's Finest. If you can offer me a book that was, you know, that, that can fill in that gap that is, you know, a special project that won't screw up, that won't fail, then I'm all ears. And he said, oh, I've got a few ideas, Dave. I'll get back to you. A few months pass, <clears throat> and he, he phones me and says, have you heard of Chip Kid?" I had heard of Chip Kid, um, and he said that Chip's written a story about Batman, and it's all about architecture. Are you interested? I said, well, my dad was an architect. Um, I'm fascinated with architecture. I'd, I'd, I'd love, you know, I felt um, I'd failed Batman, because all the books I'd done, I wasn't happy with any of them. And to be, to be, offered, to be offered the chance to fix that issue was kind of, you know, I, I couldn't resist it, really. Um, and I just, I took it on faith that it, it it wouldn't mess up this time, and that because Mark was editing it, it wouldn't be politically mired, um, that he'd have control over it, he'd allow it to go on as he'd want it to, um, and that was the case. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, at, at the time, I'd, I'd just had a, a daughter, and I had to explain to Mark that, you know, I was now pretty much a full-time dad because my partner goes out to work stupidly early in the morning so I was going to have to look after my daughter and I felt fine with that I was absolutely more than delighted to do that I always wanted to be a dad um, and so I dedicated my life to, to you know working as, as much as I could in comic books but you know my daughter was was kind of the most important thing and you know if, if you can work with that mark then you know we've we've got a deal. If 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 you can allow me to do the project in my own time, while I look after my daughter, then we've you know I'll sign the contract. And amazingly, he allowed me to do that. And I I worked, you know I, I've been criticised for the amount of time I took on Batman, Death by Design. It took three years to produce, mm -hmm. but over half that time I was not drawing. I was I was. <clears throat> My, I was doing my other job, which was being a dad. You which know, I'd, I'd get up. Full time. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's 48 hours a day. Um, so yeah, it was amazing, you know. And Chip was brilliant about it. Um, he understood my situation. I think he, you know, he clearly respected the, the the concept of me finding being a dad far more important than drawing comic books. Um, you know, so I'd, I'd get up, crack a dawn, look after my daughter, and usually I'd take it to her, her grandparents, sort of after dinner time so I'd have about maybe four or five hours a day to draw so you know it's, it's to me it's amazing it only took three years to produce because there was a lot of work involved it seemed very um, in a way stylistically constrained like you kind of had to have a certain aesthetic with that book yeah um, which was something you know I'd kind of fought against in the past and like I said I'd just <laughs> I'd just been allowed to work in my own style at last after, you know, over a decade of trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I was being invited back to D.C. And, and not using a house style, but using a very um, very controlled aesthetic that Chip had laid out, which was, um, you know, Hugh Ferris, the, the great architect. We want the city to look like it's been drawn by him. Um, and I, I, I said, well, okay, if, if the book's set in 1930... Chip's, uh, Chip's concept was that the book had been lying in a drawer for, for 50 years and someone had discovered it and it had been drawn in 1930. You know, Bob, Bob, <laughs> Kane, Bob Kane had written it, um, put it in a drawer and someone had, you know, someone had sat there and drawn it in 1938. And, okay, so I looked around. Who was, who was drawing around that time? Who, who were the great artists? And um, I'd, I'd already... I already knew about Andrew Loomis, who was an amazing magazine illustrator. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, Andrew Loomis could do an amazing Batman book. So I, I spent three months um, building a style based on Andrew Loomis's work and, and other artists in that period. So my work would look like it was drawn in 1938. I wanted it to look, you know, quite ancient. Uh, and not recognisably modern at all, and um, and I had to you know I had to do all the research on on Hugh Ferris and learn how to draw these buildings and um, <clears throat> so you know, like I say for three months I was purely doing research and, and development. It was more like working on a film than a comic book. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was dedicated to it because, like I said, I I, I wanted to make. I'll finally be able to walk away. If, you know, eventually, when I walk away from comic books, when I'm so old, I don't want to walk away without a Batman book I'm proud of. Because, yeah. you know, that was the character I'd worked on mostly in my career, and I'd never been happy with any of them. And, and to have a Batman book that I was happy with would mean a lot to me. So that's, you know, this is why I poured so much into it. And thank God Mark Chirello was so amazing about it. And he, he, he was obviously pressured um, and, and and he had to tell a lot of people to fuck off many times, probably. Um, you know, just let Dave do what he's doing. It'll be good. You know, I can't believe looking back, you know, comparing the situation with World's Finest and the projects before that, how the, the situation was so different with Mark in, in charge, and it kind of proved to me how important Mark is in the industry. Um, you know, and, and clearly he must have a lot of respect. Yeah. It's a the system from, they're working in and just yeah. how confining it is. 
Yeah, for for a guy like Mark Trello to exist in DC, I think is so important. Because um, you know, he, 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 all he wants to do is produce really good comic books, and a lot of the, the stuff there, certainly the ones I've worked with in the past, it's kind of what they want. But at the same time, they they, they find it they're, they're pressured by the guys in suits to produce comic books of a reasonable standard. But yeah. the, the most important thing is to make the money at a certain time, and that's that's that, that's the goal. And it's not to produce beautiful comic books that people want to read. <clears throat> and you know, Mark is 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 on his own in that in that field. I think. Um. So that came out, what, last year? Middle last yeah. year? Yeah, and May last year, yeah. You're, uh, you just mentioned on your blog uh, you're going to be doing an issue of um, Brandon Graham's Profit, and I'm wondering about yes. your excitement about doing oh. it and kind of the, the free reign in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's going to be the tricky thing, you know. Where, where, do, we, where do we draw the line? Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I did, did, yeah, did, did Ian, who runs the Quench Consciousness, the, the Mobius uh, garage site on, on the internet, which I, I greatly respect. It's, uh, every morning I get up, <coughs> I have my breakfast, and I look on his website to see what piece of Mobius artwork he's discovered. It's an amazing website. Mm -hmm. And um, <coughs> apparently it's thanks to him that he was talking with you guys and Brandon and Brandon and um, my name was mentioned, wouldn't it be an interesting idea if Dave could do an issue of Profit? And I'm so grateful for that conversation. Um, I'm having a whale of a time working, I'm presently working on a, a John Wagner script, 2008, Judge Dredd. And it's, it's great, it's a wonderful job. Um, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot, of, a lot of work lined up for them. I've got other projects after this. But when I was contacted about the profit gig, I thought, well, I'm going to have to find a way of doing this. You know, I'm going to have to fit it in somehow, because um, this is completely genuine. Profit is the only book I've seen in years that I thought was any good. Um, that I thought was that just spoke to me. It it it, it resonates with me on on so many levels. Um, I love it. I'm just a massive fan of the book. You know, what can I say? Um, and I've, I've been developing a project myself called Tom Tom McCoo, which is, I'm trying to redo that, that pamphlet I did that Mobius saw in 1988. Um, I want to tell the story properly. Uh, and I've been building up this, this graphic novel um, and the style I've been developing for it. <clears throat> and it, it's very esoteric, very weird, um, um, so when I saw Prophet, it was kind of like, "Whoa, hang on, this, this is this, this kind of fits in with that whole the whole flow of consciousness thing, and the, 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 the stylistically it's similar." And so when I was offered the job, I thought, "Well, yeah, it, it's kind of what I'm already doing privately." Yeah. Um, it's such a great book. I recommend everybody to read it. Um, a friend of mine was, has been nagging me for months. Um, he kept mentioning it. He said, "Have you seen Profit yet? Have you seen Profit yet? You must, you must get a copy." <laughs> and, and eventually, I did. <clears throat> and I was, yeah, like I say, I was blown away. It's it an amazing piece of work. It's pretty neat for a lot of folks because it's, uh, it's a very rare example of a weird, like, collective comic in a way. 
Yeah. Where everyone kind of puts in their stuff, and you can kind of see all these influences working into it, and all these styles, and there isn't like a house style to it. Everyone has very distinct what they're doing, but you can see yeah. they're all kind of coming from a post-heavy metal world. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Which obviously appeals to me, you know, yeah. very much. <laughs> um, the, the, the scope of it, the scale, reminds me of, of you know, the American side of things, like what the sort of thing Jack Kirby would do. You know, be able to get a, 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 a massive scaled image onto one page, you know, mind-boggling stuff. Um, but also, probably more accurately, the Philip Drouet work, it reminds me more of, you know, the, the, the scale of, of the, the, the cosmic scale of it. Um, you know, it's clearly, clearly indebted to, to those heavy metal artists, Seemingly, you know, prominently, Drouet, maybe Mobius, and you know, I know Brandon's a huge Mobius fan. Yeah, same with Farrell. I know Farrell is as well. Right. Farrell Dalrymple. Yeah. A fine group there's, of lads. There's so few books like that. You know, this this is what appealed to me. Um, it, it's it's fantastic for me personally to see that that kind of work being published now, mm-hmm. because there was just there's been none of it. Uh, you know, apart from in Europe, there's, there's quite a lot. But you know, in, in a um, in a mainstream American comic book, for that kind of freedom of expression and and scope and, and just pure science fiction, um, it's just a rare item, you know, and it, it's more beautiful because of it. Yeah. Well, congrats. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be uh, really interesting. Is it? Do you know who's going to color it or? Um, I think I'm going to be allowed to colour it myself. Okay, nice. Um, and I've got a weird story attached, which I've got to tell you. Um, I, I told this to Brandon, and he hasn't written back to me since. <laughs> I, think he might, I think he might think I'm mad. Um, but just to clarify how mad I am, um, and I, this is absolutely God's honest truth. <clears throat> the night before I was contacted by Ian about this project, I had a dream. Uh, it was a most vivid dream occasionally I have these very vivid dreams but they're all pretty rare and um, in the dream I was in this cave system deep underground and the floor was kind of this dark blue black crystal um, <clears throat> but flat very straight left straight edged kind of you know quartz crystal kind of thing with these chasms shooting down to the, the center of the planet. And I knew it wasn't my planet. It wasn't Earth. Um, and I, I sort of wandered through these caverns, this very, very dark. And there was this, <clears throat> I came across this ancient underground, ancient city. And um, I woke up twice during the dream and went back into the dream each time, which is super rare um, for me to do. Um, and it went on like this. And then, I mentioned it to Brandon, <clears throat> thinking it might be a good sort of background visual because I I jumped out of bed that morning and, and and sketched it down in my sketchbook all these panels of this this cave system <clears throat> and um, and this this ancient city and so I, I mentioned it to Brandon. He thought, yeah, that, that might be an idea. We would sort of to and fro in about ideas, what we what we might come up with, and he 
you know, desperately wanted me to do something I, 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 I wanted to do. And I, I desperately wanted him to write something he'd enjoy writing. So, you know, we'd produce our best work. And so I told him about this idea. <clears throat> and then a couple of days later, he very graciously sends me two copies, a uh, copy of these two covers for profit, mm -hmm. for future issues of profit. And I couldn't believe one of them. It was... Um, it was basically an illustration of um, a black, dark blue cave system with crystal floors, with gaps in the crystal running down to the ends of the earth with an ancient city in the background and these, these steps just like I'd walked down in my dream. It was, it was as if uh, Helen, I can't remember her second name, illustrated it. Um, it was as if she basically channeled my dream, or I channeled her vision of the cover. <laughs> and it was totally, I mean, I'm not, I can't exaggerate how, how mind-boggling it was for me to see, to, to see this cover, because it was, I'd, I'd been in that cover, I'd wandered around inside it, you know, and it was such a vivid dream. So I, I see this as, as quite prophetic, <clears throat> pardon the pun, that, you know, I, this, this is going to be a good gig to do, you know. Brandon and I are going to produce something really worthwhile, and and, um, and you'll yeah, have it was fun. Got a deep experience. And you guys will have fun doing it, hopefully. Yes, I'm sure we will. If he gets back to me, if he doesn't think I'm completely potty. Ah, <laughs> uh, I just know he's slow. He's slow in his emails. As a matter, <laughs> emails it's too That's easy cool. to contact people, and it's too easy to procrastinate. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dave, for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, it's um, been a great pleasure. It's been I'm really a great, great fan of your website and the, the whole interview system. It's, it's, I still haven't finished listening to them all, but uh, uh, I, I certainly intend to. There's a lot to listen to. I think you may need help if you go through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a reminder, folks, I've been talking to Dave Taylor. Uh, his latest work is Batman Death by Design as well uh you can check out the tongue lash series that came out from dark horse many years ago will never get reprinted um <clears throat> there was a discussion but i think it's fallen apart um i don't want to get into the politics of it but uh, i don't think it's going to happen um I, I i would i would love to see it republished um, as long as it was very clearly marked that it was for adults only, because it is, like you said earlier, it was quite perverse. Let's um, say filthy. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I agree with filthy, but I, I kind of I'm, I'm sort of on the fence with this one because um, I grew up thinking comics were for kids, mm -hmm. and there's a big argument on that uh, as a defence for that statement that, that comic books are for children, and I don't agree with it. Um, some of the, my, my favorite comic books are clearly not for children. Um, <clears throat> but I did feel kind of, maybe, maybe it's being British, maybe because we've got a very tiny comic industry and the only comics in England are comedy comics that be, you know, the dandy, whatever, um, <clears throat> majority of them. And then there's 2000 AD, which is, you know, is out there sometimes. But still, you know, big children can read it uh, without being offended. Um, but it's certainly not filthy. Um, so I kind of felt a bit weird about Tongue Lash. Um, but I did it. It's out there. You know, I can't not draw it. 
I can't, you know, I can't undraw it, rather. Um, and I'm very proud of it. Um, <clears throat> just as long as children don't get to see it, that's, that's my only concern. It, it's a pretty lovely, uh, well-put-together book, and I, I do hope someone, something works out one day, but it sounds like... I, I do hope so. Can I, can I briefly mention my film project? Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Um, I don't know, I don't know what, um, generally American, well, I, 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 know, I know what Americans think of UFOs, <clears throat> I've got no idea about the Canadian attitude, um, but I'm, I'm working on a, a film project based on, um, the 1980 event in Rendlesham Forest in England, uh, in America it's known as the Bentwaters Incident. Um, and I'm working with a, a guy called Gary Hasseltine, who's a, a retired, only recently retired police detective. And he's written the script for this film, and we're hoping to make a TV series out of it as well. Um, <clears throat> so this is something I'm, 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 I'll be working on this year, and I'll, I'll be posting information on my blog as, as, as I get it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm an adamant believer in UFOs, and the Disclosure Project, and um, <clears throat> and now Brandon will probably think I am completely mad. Because uh, I know there's, there's, like, people are sort of divided on this one. If People either, you know, seriously believe in UFOs and ET, and we're not alone in the universe, or they're just completely opposed to the concept, and those that think it's true, they think they're mad. Uh, that's the attitude I've, I've seemed to have found. Anyway, I don't know what you think. Where, where do you where do you fall on this one? On UFOs? Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty skeptical. Yeah, good. <laughs> as long as it's healthy skepticism, that's fine. Uh, I think because I, I saw a UFO as clear as day. It was nighttime, but it was it was a five minute, maybe ten minute episode. It was not. It couldn't have been anything else but a flying saucer, not built on this planet. Um, it was corroborated by my friend's mum who also saw the thing witnessed exactly the same thing the same night um <clears throat> i know for a fact that it was a flying saucer classic flying saucer um and to skeptics that it sounds quite mad <laughs> but until you've seen one yourself you know it's very difficult to believe or you know to give up that 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 uh almost cynicism about it I, I completely understand it uh, and even though I've seen one I've spent years researching it to, just to confirm for myself that I'm you know what I saw wasn't a, wasn't some kind of you know brain process or you know it was a coincidence that my, my, my friend's mum saw it, something as well and you know it's, it's a very very odd subject um, granted but um I hope it doesn't. <laughs> I hope we're talking about it doesn't put people off buying my comic books. I don't. I'm not. Think I'm not mad. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, thanks. Thanks for letting me get get that that thing in because if people are interested in 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 the subject, this is. Hope if it gets made, it'll be a groundbreaking film because we've got the 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 Bentwaters case, the Rendlesham Forest case is quite amazing. It, it's as powerful as the Roswell case. In fact, more so because there's. <clears throat> there's many witnesses to it that uh, are still alive today and are quite willing to talk about it openly. And if you do a, just a tiny bit of research into the Disclosure Project, you'll see that there's an awful lot of highly respected people in military 
uh, ex-military, ex-air force that are willing to step forward mm-hmm. and quite openly say that yes, there's something going on and we're not alone in the universe and we're being visited. It's, I find it a fascinating subject, whether it's true or not. You know, I know it is. <laughs> even if it's, <clears throat> even if you're slightly interested, I think I think it's worth doing a bit of research because this this shit's going to come out in the next, you know, maybe a decade. Um, and I think people need to be prepared that we're not alone. Uh, when there's nothing to be frightened of. These these things, these ETs, whatever, they're not going to eat your brains. Um, <clears throat> they're on our side. They're kind of like the big brother. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'll shut what? up because I'm, I'm getting no response from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scaring you. <laughs> nah, uh, it takes a lot to scare me. Oh, um, good. But the, there's stuff on your website, on your blog about this as well. There's a little bit at the moment, yeah. All right. <clears throat> and I'll have a link to it on the website. There we go. Cool. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Dave, and I really appreciate you taking the time from your uh, fatherly duties to chat with me. That's a pleasure. Yeah, all the best.